Thanks for joining us here at the Light San Diego podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. For more information, please visit our website, lightsandiego.com. So we're one week away from Advent, which is the season, the four Sundays leading up to Christmas. And we've just finished a series called Future Church. And last week we talked about how uh, the why, the source of the last two or three months of teaching of how we are to be a, a church in the culture that we're living in, is all predicated on this thing called the gospel. And so if you didn't get a chance to listen to that, feel free to go back and listen. Uh, but this week, before we conclude all of these conversations around the church, we've talked about how, we've talked about why, um, what we want to do this week is really talk about how does that take shape? How does the reality of the gospel translate to the formation of this church? And it would be, in my opinion, and I think the opinion um, biblically, it would be just a total miss if we didn't spend some time talking about the role of the Holy Spirit in the formation of the church, that the Holy Spirit is the one who illuminates the gospel to us. It's the one who shines a flashlight on this incredible mystery of the the work, the life, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's the Spirit who comes and empowers the bride of Christ to be all that we're intended to be. And so I wanted to uh, take some time this Sunday uh, to be able to just dialogue about the role of the Holy Spirit in forming and creating His church. Uh, when Jen and I were first married, uh, there was a lot of things that I realized I was not prepared for. Um, we got married really young, and um, I kind of being the eternal optimist that I am, uh, there's just things that I learned along the way. One of those moments happened when our battery uh, went dead in our car. And uh, after kind of some quick diagnostic work, just was able to identify, here's the problem. We were able to identify, here's even the solution. Um, But it was also the same time when Jen's mom and dad were in town visiting us. Um, Like I said, we're newly married. And so our battery's dead. And he he comes to me and he agrees, like, we know what the problem is. We even know what the solution is. And he just says this. Uh, really um, revealing comment. He says, hey, why don't you bring your tools out and we'll fix it. And I was just thinking we'd call AAA and the, like let the professionals handle it. And he's like, go, go grab your tools. And so I go into our kitchen. I open up our junk drawer, which is where I kept my tools. And I pulled out a hammer, a screwdriver with a pink handle and like a pair of needle nose pliers. Um, and I brought, I literally walked out to my my father-in-law, my new father-in-law, holding my tool set in my hand, like, here we go. And he just looks at me, doesn't say anything, and um, just kind of just drops his head and just realizes that that's not really going to work. And somehow we we find some tools. And uh, the next day, after feeling absolutely like husband shamed by my inability to provide the right tools that we needed, uh, the next day I walk in from work 
And there's an entire set of tools just sitting on our living room floor with a bow on top. And um, that's always been this really humorous and funny story, uh, but also a picture for me of, of really, um, it's kind of what Jesus did for us. And just a picture of the gospel in that like, we are able to see the problem, even identify that we need a solution, but apart from a radically generous gift, we're not able to provide um, or to realize that solution. But here's the other part of this story, is in, in the giving of the gift of the tools, and let's say that's the gospel, in the giving of this gift, alongside that gift also came presence, also came my father-in-law, his, him walking alongside me, showing me what to do, how to use the tools, uh, knowing what to do, taking over for me when I couldn't. And so as much as it would have been a great story if he just he said like, hey, you can never get these, the tools you need. Here's the tools you need. Great story. But the real gift was his presence coming alongside it. And here's the beauty of the gospel is the gospel story and the gospel reality is partnered with the incredible promise of the Holy Spirit. You see, after Jesus' death and resurrection, he ascended into heaven, comes along the person of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is so anticipatory and confident in the person of the Holy Spirit, which for those of you who are new to the idea of the Trinity, is the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, that he actually tells his disciples, it's better that I go away, because if I don't go away, then he's not going to come. It talks about in John's Gospel. And so Jesus has this high, high expectation of the role of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit comes along and he illuminates that gift of the Gospel, but then comes, walks alongside us to help realize the potential of this gift. And this that summary, this story is laid out in Luke's two-part gospel. Uh, Luke was a doctor and a historian, and he wrote uh, a, a biography of the life of Jesus based on eyewitness accounts, and then writes a part two of really the birth of the church after the ascension of Jesus. And one thing you'll notice in both Luke and Acts, which is really one book with two volumes, is you'll notice the emphasis that Luke places on the role of the Holy Spirit. That there is, uh, there's really not much that we see Jesus doing until we see the Holy Spirit show up. And likewise, we don't see the birth of the church, the expansion of the church, the discipleship, the mission of the church, apart from the empowerment, the presence, and the person of the Holy Spirit. So I wanted just to talk about that in in, in the context of where we are, because here's, here's my fear, is because we live in a culture that values education, it values um, a performance, it values this sense of individual autonomy, that we could be sitting in church hearing all of these things and we could walk away after two or three months of talking about this is what the church should be. And we've walked away with a strategy instead of a spirit. We've walked away with knowing what the problem is, how to address it, and even the gift of the gospel. But unless we invite the person and the work of the Holy Spirit into our church and into our lives as individuals, that work, that gift will be under-realized. It will be, we will not perform 
or live into the the reality that God has asked us to. I think it's uh, interesting. Eugene Peterson points out that God gave us the miracle of congregation the same way he gave us the miracle of Jesus, by the sending of the dove. Now, what he's referencing here is in Luke chapter 3, we see Jesus emerge out of obscurity. We don't, we don't know much about Jesus' life from his birth, a little glimpse when he's 12. But we're not told much about his life until he turns 30. He gets baptized. And this is what Luke records. When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. And what's so incredible about uh, this passage is that up to this point, Jesus does not perform any miracles. And the reason why that's so incredible is because Jesus not only comes, he's fully God, he's also fully human. And so it is not till after the giving of the Holy Spirit that we see Jesus perform miracles. We see him restore sight to the blind and raise the dead and, 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 and minister to the poor and draw the marginalized back into society and ultimately give his own life. And all of this we see tied to the Holy Spirit, not as some sort of like, wow, that's great for Jesus, but as a model for humanity. Because the same Holy Spirit that came and rested upon Jesus shows up again when the church is born. Right? When the dove shows up, it's the beginning of Christ's ministry and it's also the beginning of the church. And so I wanted to just kind of walk through the, the beginning of the book of Acts, right? The second chapter, the second um, uh, part of Luke's gospel. And I want to walk through some of the, the activity of the Holy Spirit in the formation of the early church. And so six things we see the Spirit do in just the first couple of chapters. Number one, we see Spirit-modeled unity. We see Spirit-empowered witness. We see Spirit-formed community. We see spirit-led generosity, spirit-caused hospitality, and lastly, spirit-provoked thankfulness. This is just in the first two chapters, which is really the birthplace of the church that we are still a part of 2,000 years later. Number one uh, thing that stands out when you read the first two chapters of Acts is that there is a spirit-modeled unity. Now, like I mentioned before, the Holy Spirit is God, um, the same as the Son and the Father. And the Holy Spirit and Jesus and the Father model for us a divine, eternal, self-preferring unity that is always to be looked at, um, formed in who we are. So it shouldn't surprise us that after Jesus raises up, the Spirit is given. This is what Jesus is saying. This is before he ascends to heaven. He says, don't leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my Father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you going to restore the kingdom of Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know the times or the dates of the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. If we skip down to verse 12, Jesus has now ascended up into heaven and the disciples are just left there. Can you just imagine, like, 
Okay, we're just told to wait for this Holy Spirit to show up. And so what they do. Then the, then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk, which is about, about half a mile. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room they were staying, the upper room. Those present were Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, who was a tax collector, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas, son of James. They were all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary and the mother of Jesus with his brothers. Now, a couple things to point out. That word together is going to show up again and again and again in these first two chapters. There was this supernatural unity that was taking place. And when Luke records this, he actually makes the point to name out all of the 12 disciples. And every time you read the list of 12 disciples, you should point out the, the extreme polarized differences in that, those group of humans. Like literally separated by one person, there's Matthew, a tax collector, someone who's absolutely in line with Rome, who's been collecting um, and got rich before he met Jesus off of the taxes of his own people. And then next to him, there's um, what we see is Simon the Zealot. And Simon the Zealot would have been the opposite end of the spectrum, that he thought Rome was so evil that he was willing to take up arms to defeat it, and maybe already had. And so when you have this group, you see something from the very beginning that we might miss at first read through, but you see a, a divine, supernatural unity that marked the early church. And the reason I'm bringing this up is because I had, I had coffee with a friend of mine today who mentors pastors. And he told me story after story of how churches have been split these last two years um, based on politics, based on how they've handled the pandemic. Um, all of things that I think they're important conversations to have, but they're not what defines our unity. It's the gospel. And I think if we're to look at the early church and what the Spirit of God was doing, one of the very first things we do is we see that there is a Spirit-modeled unity that is sweeping these followers, as Jesus is, has gone to heaven, the Holy Spirit is poured out. And it's not, just, it's not just pastors who are noticing this. Matter of fact, a recent article out of the Atlantic magazine was titled, The Evangelical Church is Breaking Apart. This is from Peter Werner. One of the ex excerpts says this, When the Christian faith is politicized, churches become repositories not of grace, but of grievances, places where tribal identities are reinforced, where fears are nurtured, and where aggressions and nastiness are sacralized. The result is not only wounding the nation, it is having a devastating impact on the Christian faith. I think about that secular writer's synopsis of the Christian faith in America. It is having a devastating impact. And I just, I, I sense the Spirit of God calling the church, but that includes our church, that no matter how divisive the world goes in around us, we have something greater. We must have something greater to unite ourselves around. It is the work of the Spirit. 
It is the fruit of the gospel that I have more in common with someone who shares my faith in Jesus Christ than anyone who shares my view on society or economics or politics. Uh, Anyone who has the same mindset or worldview or heritage as me, there must be something deeper. And this is the work of the Spirit, which requires us to extend grace to one another. And so I think even heading into the holidays, when you're maybe around a table with people who think differently than you and maybe even express what they think in ways that feel repulsive or offensive to you, can, can I just encourage you, invite the Holy Spirit to be the author of order and reconciliation because we know that there's another force at play that wants disorder and wants offense. And we have to remember the first, the thing of first importance. That's the gospel. This is what the Holy Spirit has come to illuminate, which causes a unity we cannot get around. The second thing that we see here in the early church is that the Holy Spirit gives an empowered witness. This is promised in Acts 1.8. The Holy Spirit will come on you and He will empower you. And we see this played out not too much longer. In Acts chapter 2, it says, When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. There's that language again. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. And all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began speaking in tongues as the Spirit enabled them. I love this this beautiful gift that as Jesus goes from heaven, not only does he give the Spirit, but the Spirit comes to empower us to be his witnesses. The sermon that's about to come out of Peter's mouth in the rest of Acts chapter 2 is a, is a chiasm. It's a Hebrew-structured poem that centers on one thing, the death and resurrection of Jesus. The Spirit empowers us to be his witnesses. I love Parker Palmer, the The Quaker author says this, Here's one of the greatest acts of love, empowering another person, knowing full well that person will probably make serious mistakes with that power, knowing that those mistakes may be costly even to the one that does the empowering. Have you ever ever thought about the empowerment of the Holy Spirit as an act of love? It's a gospel act. That Jesus is entrusting us with power, with His power from His Spirit, so that we can go and point people back to Him to be His witnesses. And we all could recite dozens of stories of how we've failed and other people have failed at that, but yet it is God's grace that continues to empower us to do that. And as, as followers of Jesus and as a church, let's invite the Holy Spirit not only to unify us, but to empower us to be His witnesses, just like Pastor Keith was talking about a couple weeks ago. Third thing is after this incredible um, message where we see 3,000 men get saved from all different cultures from around the world, we start seeing the very first depiction of the church. We've, we talked about this at the beginning when COVID came out, but I, I want to read it again. And I want to use it as a mirror for our church. And I want to use it as a, as a magnifying glass for our church to clarify some things. He says this, They devoted themselves, this is the church, to the apostles' teachings and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. 
All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. I love this. Ronald Rollheiser says this. Simply put, real Christian community is a gathering around the person of Christ in a way that displaces our selfishness so that we begin to live in charity, joy, peace, patience, goodness, long-suffering, faith, constancy, mildness, and chastity that makes it possible to precisely live with each other beyond differences, fears, and incompatibilities. That was the work of the Spirit. By those who put their faith in the gospel, a new family, a new community was formed. And there's all sort of beautiful imagery that's being used there. I wanted to highlight just a few. Um, there And there are a few that I think are timely, a few that um, I think need some clarity. The first one is that this community was marked in their fellowship and in their togetherness by a spirit of generosity. The Holy Spirit was leading them in this, in this act of giving. Verse 44 says, All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Um, it, it expands on this thought two chapters later is in Acts chapter 4. Listen to what it says. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them that there was no needy person among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. This It's easy to read this as some sort of historical event that was radical and unique and, and unreplicable. And I would just want to challenge that. That as a church, um, if you've been a part of Light, you, what you'll realize is, we don't talk about tithe and offering every week. We don't talk about it, maybe even as often as we should. But I think as I look at the early church, there was something that marked it that would be just amiss if we didn't bring this up, that a mark of a spirit-formed church is a generous church. Now, a few thoughts on that. Number one is that already marks our church. Um, this is an amazing community. The outpouring of generosity, of things that have been given and donated, and finances that have been given to the refugee camp is amazing. Those who give faithfully every month in their tithe, it's, it is amazing. But I also recognize that there might be people in this community who, who are curious and skeptical, um, and maybe even offended at the notion of why a church would ask for money. And so I wanted to just take a moment and just to bring some clarity to that. Um, number one is that when, when giving is mentioned, this is not something that was generated by Western modern churches. It's not a, a try and a use or abuse of power. 
It's, it's just biblical from the Old to the New Testament that God sees his people's response and generosity and giving as signs of trust and worship of him. Um, I would love to spend more time just diving to the scriptures, but just a few, few notes of what biblical generosity looks like. Number one, there is a, a principle what's called first fruits. And for an agrarian culture, the idea is that you would give God not what was left over after everything was distributed, but you would give God your first and your best of your crops. Why was that so important? Because you don't know what the second round of harvest was going to look like. So it was an ultimate radical act of trust, which absolutely aligns with Jesus talking to his followers, just saying, listen, where your treasure is, there will be your heart also. So whenever giving is talked about, not in a polluted, controlling, humanistic kind of way, but in a biblical kind of way, it always has to do, God, I trust you as my provider. Secondly, throughout the scripture, we see this principle called a tithe, which literally just means a tenth. And there's a lot of talk within the modern church of saying that that was an Old Testament principle under the Mosaic Law. And although it was very much a part of the Mosaic Law, a couple of things I want to draw attention to. Number one, the idea of a tenth being given is in Genesis before the law of Moses is ever given. Secondly, after the Old Testament is complete and the New Covenant begins, Jesus has an opportunity to dismiss the idea of a tithe when he's talking to the Pharisees. And he says, woe to you, you tithe on, on your mint and your rue and your dill and your spices, but you neglect justice and mercy. You should have practiced the latter. You should have been tithing without neglecting the, the former. I'm sorry, without, you should have practiced the former without neglecting the latter, meaning justice and mercy is of the greater importance, but this does not mean that we're not supposed to practice generosity. And some of you have me like 10%. That sounds absolutely preposterous or radical. And that, I, I understand that. Um, but the fact that we see this brought up from the Old to the New Testament, I think is something for us to wrestle with. But the reason we don't see this in the New Testament, and it's pretty much agreed upon, is that the New Testament church didn't have a problem with the tithe because they were giving above and beyond 10%. People were selling properties and land and giving to where there's need. The generosity marked by the Spirit was renowned. But we also see in this that Paul, when he talks about giving, he says that don't do it under compulsion. Don't do it because a pastor is twisting your arm or you feel guilty. But be a cheerful giver. But he also says this at the end of 1 Corinthians. says, now about the collection of the Lord's people, do what I told the Galatian churches to do on the first day of the week. Each of you should set aside of some money in keeping with your income, saving it up so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. Then when I arrive, I'll give letters of introduction to the men you approve and send them with your gift to Jerusalem. Acts 24 talks about this gift to Jerusalem being, um, being gifts for the poor and also to present offerings to the Lord. And so I want to encourage you, if you've never considered giving, tithing, um, I would encourage you to, to invite the Holy Spirit to see what He might be speaking to you. And you might be like, would I have to give that all to the church? And I think that, in my opinion, that's, that's a secondary issue. But I do believe the church should be, 
if we are if we are being formed by Christ and if we are being led by the Spirit and we're found on the gospel, it should be the safest place to give. And how do you know it's the safest? When there's no need among them. When people within Light Church, with people within the refugee camp in Tijuana, with our friends in City Heights, when there's a need and our church has been actively giving and we're able to say we can meet that need that is when the church is truly shining in its in its generosity and all i would simply do is invite you into thinking about that the last thing i want you to just lay before you is that this community in verse 46 says they broke bread in their homes ate together with glad and sincere hearts praising god and enjoying the favor of all the people and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Uh, it's Thanksgiving week. And one of the things that is marked when the Holy Spirit forms His church is glad and sincere hearts. It is praising God, breaking bread in homes. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, Gratitude is profoundly transforming, is a profoundly transforming power. The yes from which all life springs. Thankfulness is an act of defiance in a culture of discontentment and disillusionment. It grounds us to the redemption of God from the past, the promise of God in the future, and the goodness of God in the present. Let's just invite the Holy Spirit to come and to fill you and me and our church so that we can continue to not only have the gift of the gospel, but the presence of the Spirit to allow us to live into this vision of what God always intended. So let's continue to be generous, to be thankful, to be empowered witnesses of Jesus Christ, and to practice unity um, in a world that's incredibly divisive. Lord, we thank you so much that you did not leave us to figure this church thing out on our own, but you gave us your spirit to empower us and to form us. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for joining us here at the Light San Diego podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. For more information, please visit our website, lightsandiego.com.